Hey, before we dive in to our text this morning, let's pray and let's ask God to come and teach us. God Almighty, thank you for those truths that we just sang about in this day of worship that you've given us, that you are the God who's worthy of all praise and worship and honor, that Jesus, you were the one who was crucified, died, and was buried and resurrected again so that we could have a living, worshipful relationship with you. And God, we pray, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, would you teach us now? Holy Spirit, would you enlighten our minds, open our eyes to the truths of your Bible, of your scriptures, and would we grow as a result more in the likeness of Jesus? And we pray this all in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, so I was recently reading an article, and it rolled across my screen. It was the article, 15 Reasons Why I Left the Church. And several of the reasons really stood out to me. It really stood out to me because oftentimes I found myself, and maybe you have found yourself feeling this about the church that you're a part of. The person who was the author of this, uh, she was about 28 or 29 when she wrote this article, and she had grown up in the church. So she had been involved in the church her entire life, but she said these were the 15 reasons why she eventually said, hey, I have to step away from this because I don't think it's where God's called me to be. And so she cited several reasons. One of them was sometimes church felt like a cult or a country club. Um, She also said she assumed that everyone had to vote the same way. She said Christians are often hypocritical. I actually really deeply respected this reason that she cited. She said, I left the church because of my own selfishness and pride, which I think can also be uh, at the heart of why somebody chooses to not follow Jesus. But one reason that stood out to me most, and she actually repeated this several times throughout the article, it was kind of weaved into several of her points, was this. She said, church, the churches that I was involved with weren't doing the things that I thought they should be involved in. In other words, she was saying the mission of the churches she was involved in and what she thought the church should be involved in didn't come together. And as a result, She felt like because those things didn't line up, she had to step away from worshiping God in the church. Now at Deer Creek, almost every fall, we pause from the sermon series that we're doing, and we spend usually three weeks just unpacking what it is, is our mission of the church. Why are we, as Deer Creek Church, sent into the world? What do we exist for? In other words, what is the mission of the church? And now, I fully submit, if you were to ask a hundred different people on the street or a hundred different Christians, you're likely to get at least a hundred different answers to what that question actually is. And if you were to read maybe a hundred different books, you might likely get a hundred different answers to that question as well. What is the mission of the church? What did Jesus send the church into the world to do? Some people would answer it by saying something along these lines. They would say, Well, the church exists to transform our culture. The church exists to make this world more like God's kingdom through engaging in politics and commerce and arts and community. And we are supposed to promote God's kingdom in the world through things like social justice and activism. Or more specifically, Maybe depending on where you live, you could practically have like an ESL course and that would help immigrants and non-speaking English speakers to have, you know, the skills they need to engage in culture and to engage in education. 
Some people would say you would go as far as hosting and housing community gardens, which reflect God's creative goodness. And those who have less access to nutritious food can come and they can grow their own and they can find community. So that's how some people would define the mission of the church. And I have to be quick to say that all of those things that I just mentioned are very good things. In fact, Christians should be concerned about injustice and we should be concerned about oppression. We should care about those who are less fortunate than we are. So those things are good. In fact, I guarantee, say we built a community garden, it's on like the north side of our lot, I guarantee there would be a plot there for Daniel Nealon, which would have zucchini and tomatoes, and I'd be there with my Hidden Valley Ranch having snacks. I guarantee we would have that because I love that kind of stuff. So these are good things, but we do believe at Deer Creek Church that Jesus has given us the church universally, his followers, a specific mission, a specific task, a specific purpose that he sent us into the world to accomplish. And guess what? The church is the only thing that can accomplish it. Are you ready for what it is? It's to make disciples. Sounds really great. Who wants to do it? Come on, anybody? All right. We got two on board. Great. Well, that's the sermon. Let's go do that. Hey, Here's the thing. The mission of Deer Creek Church, what we believe is that disciples are made specifically. And we use this language intentionally of reaching up, reaching in, and reaching out. That is, we believe disciples are made by worshiping God, by being in intimate fellowship and community with one another. That's what small groups exist for. And in service to one another, intentionally using the gifts that God has given us to serve and love other people. So that's what we talk about here at Deer Creek Church. Worship, fellowship, and service. Reaching up, reaching in, and reaching out. And by the way, we didn't make this up. We really believe that this is what we see the earliest followers of Jesus doing. So you'll remember the story. Remember the Apostle Peter? He preached the very first Christian sermon. And he did it in the city of Jerusalem. He's preaching this sermon. We're told 3,000 people believed in Jesus on that day. I've preached one time and 3,002 believed in Jesus that day. Uh, So I beat Peter. But notice what it said that those who converted to Christianity did. It said that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe, the awe of God came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So what do you see here? Well, you see the earliest followers of Jesus gathered together week in, week out, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's the teaching of the Bible. They devoted themselves to the fellowship, intimate community with one another. We see worship again in the breaking of bread and prayers. That's a way of saying communion and coming together and praying with one another intentionally as the church. And then they began to take in the things that God had given them and use them as a blessing, even times selling everything that they had to give it to the people that they were in intimate community with. What is that other than reaching up, reaching in, and reaching out? Worship, community, and service. And now some of us might say, well, hold on one second. Hold on. That was the first century. 
they didn't have any other options. We live in the 21st century, and today we have podcasts, we have blog posts, we have church online. Some people would say we have church online. We have music that's streamed directly to our phones. All of these things are acceptable, are accessible to us, so why do we still need worship? Isn't that something that's just optional? And here's what I want to do this morning. I want to look at why worship. Why do we make worship such a key and foundational priority at Deer Creek Church? Because if we're honest, we are tempted to think, hey, what we do here on a Sunday, worship in general, is not something that should be central, but something that should be done when it's convenient, whenever we have time to it. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to look at two reasons why worship is so central to us at Deer Creek Church. And we're going to look at two texts specifically. And these are texts from David. David was a king of Israel who devoted himself to a life of godliness. We were told that David was a man after God's own heart. So we're going to look at two reasons and two texts from David on why worship. Why we still do it even though it's the 21st century. So let's look at the first reason. First reason in first text, if you have your Bible, you'll see the first reason is in Psalm 29. Psalm 29. And there David is writing this song that would have been sang in worship. And notice how he describes the worship of God. He says, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. See what? David is saying here is one of the reasons, the key reason why we worship God as a church is because God is worthy of worship. God is worthy of all the worship that we can give him. Now, if you really think about, hey, what are the benefits of worship to us practically? I actually looked some of these up. The Washington Times came out with a recent polling statistic. They said that people who are actively involved in religious worship and community live on average 6.48 years longer than those who have no faith. So as Dwayne told me earlier this week, he said, worship or die. That's the sum of that. <laughs> Pew, Pew Research came out with their own statistics. And these are, these are also very interesting. They said, actively religious people are more likely than their less religious peers to describe themselves as very happy. So another practical benefit. Pew Research also found that actively religious people who worship are more engaged in charity and socially active in clubs and community organizations. So somebody who kind of pulled all these statistics together said, in sum, the studies have shown that religion is credited with making people healthier, happier, and more engaged. And now, hear me say this, those are all great, positive, wonderful reasons and benefits of regularly worshiping God. But here's what I find interesting, is that although those things are true, when we look at the Bible, those reasons for worshiping God are never given. God never calls us to worship him because it somehow makes us more healthy, happy, and live longer. Instead, we're to worship God, and Psalm 29 is a good example of this. We're to worship God because, as David said, he's worthy to receive it. God is worthy of our praise. Did you notice in verse 2, take a look again. When, it, uh, when David is talking about worship, 
He's calling on the heavenly beings, the the angels in heaven, and he's telling them, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Meaning God is due our worship. He's worthy to receive our worship. In fact, that phrase, glory due his name, those are four words in English, but in the Hebrew, it's actually just one word, and the word is weightiness or weight. So what David is trying to have you imagine is that God is so substantial, so valuable, and so worthy that he makes everything else pale in comparison. So if you were a merchant in the ancient Near East, you would have carried a scale around, right? And say you were a merchant who sold like bundles of hay, what you would do is you'd say, okay, I'm going to charge four pieces of gold in order to sell you this hay. So you'd put the scale out, And he, the merchant, would take four pieces of gold and he'd place it on the scale and it would tip. In order to buy that bundle of hay, whoever was purchasing it had to put their own four pieces of gold to see if the scales evened out. If they were short some, obviously it would be counterbalanced. If they gave too much, it would be counterbalanced as well. And what David is trying to get us to understand is that when you take the scales of what is worthy and what is valuable in this life... You can put on every single thing in creation, all of the glory and the splendor of the stars, of the universe, of the galaxies. You can take all the splendor of human creations like the Empire State Building or the Statue of Liberty or the mountains and grandeur of creation. And if you were to put that on the scale and then put God on the other end of it, the scales would completely tip into God's favor. Every piece of worth and value in this world cannot compare to the worth and the glory, the supreme majesty of God. And I have to submit, I was trying to think about this idea, and it's very difficult in our context where we live because we don't intuitively think of other people or figures as being worthy of our devotion or being Uh, do our honor. But think of it this way. If you lived in England, and let's say you were having a dinner party, and all of a sudden, for whatever reason, Queen Elizabeth II showed up. Queen Elizabeth II walks in to your dining room. Immediately, the dynamic in the room would change, wouldn't it? All of a sudden, She would come in with her entourage, her security detail. She would be wearing this clothing and attire that's extravagant and splendorous. And people would want to be taking pictures with her. They'd want to get her autograph. In essence, the whole room would gravitate toward Queen Elizabeth II, right? And you probably wouldn't say anything bad about Queen Elizabeth II while she's in the room, right? Her weight, her glory... Her worth would be immediately felt and all the room would be attracted to her. Now, here's what you have to understand. Here's the difference between Elizabeth and God. Elizabeth receives honor and glory and praise because of her office. Because the Queen of England represents what's noble, what's good, what's powerful, what's mighty in the world. She represents the British free world. So she receives honor and glory because of her office. Do you know why God receives glory? It's not because of his office. It's because of who God is. God 
is worthy of glory and worship because of who he is. And you can see that again. Look again at verse 29, or Psalm 29, verses 1 through 2. David gives these examples of who God is. God is glorious. God is full of power and strength. That's verse 1. Verse 2, we're told, glories do his name and we worship the Lord because he is in the splendor of holiness. He's actually clothed in perfect spotlessness. He's 100% pure without sin. In other words, what makes God worthy of worship and glory is because he is who he is. Because he's worthy to receive it. And so this is really interesting. When the Bible talks about worship, it doesn't talk about it as something that is necessarily something we should do as a suggestion. God actually commands it. And as a culture, we're, we're very weary to say God commands anything of us. But notice how the Bible talks about worship. We're told, Psalm 100, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Those are all commands. Again, another command. Know that the Lord, he is God. It's he who made us and we are his. We are the people and the sheep of his pasture. Again, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. And then one command to finish it out. Bless his name. And just so you think, you know, I'm not just pulling out a text that supports what I'm trying to say. Just look one psalm before this, Psalm 99. You get the same thing. Listen to how worthy and majestic God is described. The Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He's exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. So you see just this litany of commands. Worship God. Why? Because he's worthy of it. And now I can kind of hear an objection because I hear this quite often. And the objection goes something like this. Well, isn't worship supposed to be something we do in all of life? Isn't worship something that's 24-7? And, and we're talking about it as just like one day a week that we gather to actually worship together. And I have to say, first off, affirm, that is true. All of life is called to be lived to the glory and the worship and the honor and the praise of God in every single thing that you do. So if you're a nurse or if you're a doctor, you are called to worship God, to serve God, and honor God in your profession by doing good patient care and doing what you do with integrity and doing with what you do in joy to serve other people. Or if you're a mom, you are called to worship God and how you show honor to God through your marriage or even through breaking up fights and quarrels. My wife does a lot of that these days. Students, you were called to worship God in your relationships with others and do your schoolwork with integrity, something that I didn't know what to do in college. And yes, all of life is worship, but what God wants us to see is that something special happens on Sunday when people gather and worship. And even the earliest followers of Jesus, they needed reminding of this. They needed to be reminded that worship is something that we're not to neglect. 
So in one of the earliest Christian sermons, this comes from the book of Hebrews, which, every, which a lot of commentators think was an early Christian sermon. The author of this gives a real clarifying word of encouragement. He says, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day of the Lord drawing near. So do you see what he's saying? He's saying two things. He's saying, hey, first, worship is 24-7. Worship is all of life. In fact, you need to spur one another on to love and good deeds in every realm of your life. But then he says, also, don't neglect to meet together. Don't neglect to come together as a fellowship of believers. Don't neglect to worship the Lord together, as is the habit of some. See, it was a habit of even the earliest church to neglect that. And we have to think, how can we expect to worship God 24 hours a day, seven days a week, if we're not committed to worshiping God one day a week for roughly one hour a day to really make us pause and think? So we worship God because God is infinitely worthy to receive our worship, so much so that he actually commands it of us because he knows it is for our good and it's for his glory. Now, I love this. Uh, there is a map. And people, people used to really understand this. It's hard for us to really understand God's, God's worth and, and really what place he should hold in our weeks and in our lives. But there was this man. His name was uh, Bunting. And Bunting created this map. This was back in the 17th century. He created this map that was supposed to be a depiction of the world. You can see it up on the screen behind me. And it might be hard to make out, but he didn't really think the world looked this way. But he said, conceptually, this is how we should think about the world. He said, the world is really broken up into these different lands. You see America there at the bottom left of the screen. There's Africa to the south. There's Asia to the northeast. And then there's Europe to the northwest. And notice what's at the center. See, at the center of his world, he said what should be the center of every single person is the great city of Jerusalem. And why Jerusalem? Because Jerusalem in the Old Testament was considered the city of God. It was the place where God dwelt. It was the place where God met with his people. It was the place where God was worshipped. It was the place where God actually visited his people and people could bring him sacrifices and offerings and praise. Why? Because God is so weighty, so worthy, and so marvelous and glorious that all of creation, all of God's creation goes toward him in worship and adoration. Now recall the statistics I mentioned earlier, right? That people who worship live longer, people who worship are happier, and people who worship are more socially engaged. Now it's great, isn't it? That God has actually formed worship in such a way that when we do it, it benefits us. But now I want you to think, and I actually want to challenge us to think, if those statistics weren't true, would God still be worthy of worship? Let's say we didn't live longer, or if we weren't happier, or if we weren't more socially engaged, would it still be worth worshiping God? I read this article recently. Everybody knows what's going on in Afghanistan. Uh, Afghanistan has recently been taken over by the Taliban government again. And there was a man who was being interviewed by a newspaper. His name was Ali Asani. Ali was a Christian refugee whose parents were killed in the 1990s under the first Taliban regime. 
and they were killed actually as, for being a part of a church during the Taliban government. And he said for Christians in the country to stay safe, there are a number of challenges. He says no other religions than Islam are officially recognized. Therefore, you have to live your life in secrecy as a Christian. And he says secrecy is crucial. He said the Taliban government will even walk on the streets and they'll patrol the streets, taking people's mobile phones and Bibles or any Christian messages that could pop up in a text message. They can be discovered by Taliban patrols, be checked, and those people can be persecuted. And he says it's not uncommon for family members, he says especially fathers, to just go disappearing in the middle of the night. He says, quote, as a Christian, I suffered in Afghanistan. I know how difficult the suffering is. The risk facing Christians in Afghanistan is, why, is like what my parents risked. My parents were killed by the Taliban, and I don't want that to happen to anybody else. So you see, for people like Ali, worshiping God does not guarantee a longer life expectancy. Worshiping God doesn't necessarily mean that they are going to be more happy. In fact, it often, their entire life is carried out for fear of persecution. Worshiping God doesn't mean they have the luxury of being more socially engaged because of their faith. In fact, it's the complete opposite. They'll suffer persecution. And I would wager that if you were to ask Ali, Ali, why do you worship God? Why on earth would you do that? It doesn't benefit you socially. You seem to have everything to lose, so why would you worship God? I would wager Ali would say something like this. What do you mean? What do you mean benefit me? Glory is due his name. God's worthy to be worshipped. I worship because of who he is. So Deer Creek, our mission as a church, it, it begins with worship because there is nothing worthy, there's nothing worth more of our time and of our energy and of our efforts than this, worshiping God. In all of life, yes, but intentionally doing this together because we want to recognize this is something worth coming together for. This is something worth all of our worship and all of our devotion and all of our praise. So it doesn't matter what we do as a church. If we're not aimed squarely, first of all, as the foundation, the worship of God, friends, then we're aimed at the wrong thing. We're aimed at the wrong thing. And I fear that if we don't think God is worthy, if we don't think he's worth our time and energy, then we've actually forgotten who God really is. A God who is worthy of worship. And so that leads to our second reason. Second reason in second text. So if you have your Bible, our second reason comes from Psalm 63. So David has already said that, hey, we worship God because he's worthy. But now he says, we also worship God because we were actually created for worship. It's one of the reasons God created us. Psalm 63, David cries out, oh God, you're my God. I earnestly seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in dry and a weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. So what we see here again, David, in this second psalm, what he's saying is that God has placed in every human being this desire, this longing to actually worship God. In fact, 
Did you notice, I love the imagery that he uses. He said, if we don't worship God, then we become like a desert. That we actually become parched and weary and our souls and our flesh fail. We become parched. And the only way that we can satisfy our hearts and souls is to worship God. Now, I find this fascinating. In the United States, in what many would today call a secular culture, I looked up these statistics that still only somewhere around 3 and 5% of Americans identify as atheists. Only 3 to 5%. And if you were to look back at polling, even 50 years ago, that number has pretty much hovered in that range for the last 50 years. That at the high end, only about 5% of Americans identify as atheists. So even in our highly secular culture, a culture that many would say is becoming less religious, people still believe in God. Why? Well, for this reason, because we are creatures who have been created to know something is beyond us and something else is worthy of our worship and our devotion. Because here's the thing, even when we say, I don't believe in God, or even when somebody says, I don't worship God, that doesn't mean that person doesn't worship. Instead, what it means is that they worship, but that worship is not directed toward God. It's directed toward something else. And we see this time and time again throughout the Bible. We've been studying the book of Romans here as a church for just over a year now. And the Apostle Paul, who's the writer of this letter to the Romans, he begins with this problem. He says, at our heart is this worship problem, this, this idea that we are supposed to worship God, but it's constantly directed in other places. So he begins the letter. He writes this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain, because God has shown it to us. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who's blessed forever. Amen. Now, do you see what Paul's saying here? Paul's saying God and his truth might be suppressed, but worship is never suppressed. The only thing that has changed in the human heart because of sin is we no longer worship God, our creator, but instead we worship something else, and oftentimes that's the creation. And after all, we have to be honest about this, it's not just atheists who have a worship problem, but we, all of us, myself included, have a worship problem. I guarantee today is the first day of the, the Broncos season, right? I guarantee if the Broncos lose then I will be calling 850-KOA on Monday morning, and I will be griping on the sports section about how the Broncos have taken too much of my time and my devotion and my energy. I'm going to be giving them all of my ideas on how the team can improve, on how the team can make the playoffs, and probably how the coach should be fired because one loss in my book is worthy of being fired. And here's the thing. Why do I care? 
And I care equally as much about the Nebraska Cornhuskers, and that's equally as painful. <laughs> the reality is, is I have given my heart, my devotion, my time and my energy to something other than God, and what's the result? I always find myself discontent, unsatisfied, and ultimately crushed. How sad is that? Over the Broncos. So the question is not whether we will worship or not. The question is, what will you worship? And here's what the Bible calls idolatry. The Bible actually has a word for this. When Paul was talking, he said that people exchange the glory of God for images. That word is idols. And idolatry is described best by, I think this man, his name is John Piper. He said, of idols, an idol is a thing loved or a person loved more than God. Wanted more than God, desired more than God, treasured more than God, enjoyed more than God. It could be a girlfriend. It could be good grades. It could be the approval of other people. It could be success in business. It could be sexual stimulation. It could be a hobby or a musical group. In other words, it can be anything. We can make anything the supreme object of our affection. And when we do, it's what the Bible calls idolatry. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, idolatry is severely dangerous. Mostly because those who worship idols, they end up becoming like them. So we see that in another psalm. This is Psalm 115. The psalmist there says, Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold. They're the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Before uh, we moved back to Colorado, my wife and I are from Colorado. We grew up in Arvada, but we lived for six years in Nashville. And just anybody who's lived outside of Colorado or has lived in a place that has a really distinct culture, you know, you start to become like the people that you surround yourself with, don't you? So when I lived in Nashville, I started to become Southern. It was really weird. It wasn't good. I started wearing khaki shorts and tucking in a polo shirt, which is never okay. It's never okay. I started saying y'all and eating at meat and threes. If you don't know what a meat and three is, ask a Southern person, they'll tell you. I started talking real slow, right, to keep up with people. I used to have to listen to myself on like one and a half speed in order to be like, what's going on with me? Why am I talking like this? Friends, in the same way, if we worship anything other than God, we will become like that thing that we worship, and it will not give us life. No, it'll actually make us like an idol. It'll make us senseless. That's what an idol is. It's a senseless God that we create. An idol has ears, doesn't hear. Eyes, but doesn't see. An idol senseless. And here's my fear. If we worship anything other than God, then the Bible says we'll become like those idols. We'll become spiritually lifeless and completely senseless toward God. And here's the ironic thing. As much energy and devotion and time and affection that we give toward our jobs, our wealth, our success, our power, our beauty, those things never lift a finger for us. They never do anything for us other than take. And an idol will never tell you, I love you. 
I often say, I love my job, I love my place in life, I love my home, I love my car. I have a 2003 maroon Toyota Tundra. I love that thing. Sweet, it's the coolest car ever made. My Tundra has never, upon starting it up, told me that it loves me. It never has. And what makes worshiping anything other than God so tragic is that when we become senseless because of idolatry, we fail to worship the God who does love us. We fail to worship the God who is even willing to die for us. See, we see in Jesus, when Jesus came to earth, we see the one who's worthy of worship. We see God. We see just who God is. And we see the God who is willing to become human and actually die for us, to take on flesh and live as a human being, the perfect human being in our place. Right? Even though Jesus is worthy of worship, worthy of honor, worthy of glory, Jesus was willing to become weak. Jesus was willing to hunger. Jesus was willing to thirst. Jesus was willing to be humiliated, betrayed by his friends, crucified, shamed, and to die in our place to demonstrate just how much he loves us. Friends, only Jesus does that. An idol will never do that for you. I love what one author said. He put it this way. He said, idols won't die for you. They leave that to you. Idols will not die for your sins. They leave that to you. So, Deer Creek, we worship, we make worship the central part of our mission because in Jesus, in his death for our sins, we see the one we were created for and we see the one who is worthy of our worship, the one who is actually willing to live in our place and die for us. I was told of uh, this by a friend, and I'll close on this. He had an uncle who recently passed away, and this uncle, uh, as they showed up, to go to his funeral service, the uncle had made a request and he said, during the service, I don't even want my name mentioned. I don't want a remembrance of how great my life is. I don't want an open mic of people sharing stories of what I've done. Instead, he said he wanted the entire service to only mention the name of Jesus, to be completely centered around what Jesus had done. <laughs> I thought to that, wow, here's somebody who realized and really saw the worth of Jesus, even in his death. Here's somebody who really realized what he was created for, which was to worship Jesus even in death. And the thing that makes me so encouraged is that this man, where we know that he's at now, we're told what happens there is continual worship, continual praise, continual glory given to God, given to Jesus. In the book of Revelation, we're told this is what's going on 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's the worship of God by God's people eternally, and this man's a part of it. John, who wrote Revelation, was writing, and he said he looked and he heard Around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who is slain, worthy is Jesus. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And he said he heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures, those who represent all creation, said, Amen. And the elders fell down, the elders who represent the people of God. They worshiped. I'm sure they added their Amen. 
Friends, that's what we were created for. And that's what we will one day inherit because Jesus died for us. We will be able to worship God eternally. And what we were created for will be brought to completion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths that you have created us, that you are our creator. And as our creator, you are deserving of all worship, honor, power, and glory. You're worth more than anything in this world. God, we thank you that when we come to worship, we are blessed as a result. We hear about the good news that you sent your son Jesus to live for us and die for us, to take our shame and our sin upon him. And God, we pray that you would give us your spirit to help us worship your son Jesus more, who is the lamb who was slain. And we would give all praise and honor and glory as a church to him. God, make this the most important thing in our lives, in our weeks. God, that we would be known as a community, as a people who worship God, the one who is worthy. Jesus, we thank you that you are the lamb who was slain, that you are worthy of all worship. And would you help us do that now? We pray this all in your name. Amen.